The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. The New Testament reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also, also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Well, I'm the irregular preacher. It's a pleasure to be here. My wife and I have uh, talked about for four years, I guess, coming to visit All Saints, um, being from Jacob's Well. I can't believe it's four years already, and um, I'm, we're very happy to come and, and be here. And next time, it won't be because I'm preaching, hopefully, but uh, it's great to see you all. Imagine, if you will, Aaron Rodgers has, you know, his, this great year next year. We win the Super Bowl. Yay. Sorry, Minnesota fans. Um, someday, right? Uh, but after that, he retires, and we have this long streak of no titles for Titletown. I think we can put up with about 10 years. That's about it, Right? Well, it keeps going, no, no victory, no victory, no victory. Um, but, you know, things are happening over at Lambeau. The Titletown District continues to do well. And, um, but the team's not doing good. They, they're really not showing it on the, nationally, but uh, even locally, the TV no longer does it. Instead, you have to go to Titletown District to watch the games, uh, home and away. Uh, they're making lots of money, but the people aren't very happy. And along comes a political leader. 
And this political leader uh, makes some promises to the people of Green Bay about how he's going to change things. And the city, not just the Titletown District, is going to thrive. And they're going to bring back the glory of Green Bay. And everyone's, yeah, yeah, this is great. And election day is coming near. And uh, he finally reveals some of his plans. And he says, well... One of the things I want to do is bring the Hallis family and they'll become, uh, you know, half owners of the Packers. And then they're the ones that own the Chicago Bears. And, um, and then we're going to raise Lambeau Field altogether. We're just going to, we're just going to get rid of it. Do you think the enthusiasm for such a leader would continue? Well, maybe in Minnesota. Um, but probably not here in Green Bay. There would probably be immediate plots to try to kill him especially if he was popular. There's a, something similar going on here with Jesus. Um, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King, and He is coming. He is announced from the very beginning, if you recall. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God being at hand means that there is something new that has begun with Jesus. And as the new has come, the old is passing away. The problem is, is that people have only known the old. People have only known that their relationship with God is mediated through this priest and through the temple and, uh, and obeying the laws of sacrificing at the temple, of, of being taught at the temple, of presenting their children at the temple. Everything revolves around the temple. It is the pinnacle even prophecies have talked about that day when the Messiah comes, when there's going to be these uh, last days. Uh, Micah, for instance, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It shall, come, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountains of the house, the mountain of the house of the Lord uh, shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What a wonderful promise and a wonderful image. And I'm sure the people in Jesus' day that this is what they were expecting. At the time of Jesus, there is an occupying force, the Romans who live there. And the Romans, if you don't know this, have this uh, nice city called Rome. And it is located on, get this, seven hills. And, and it was a common understanding that when the Messiah comes, their hills are going to be laid, made low and our hill is going to be made the great one. And the people will be streaming not to Rome. They'll be streaming to Jerusalem. They'll be streaming to Mount Zion. And we, God's people, are going to rule. And it will be wonderful. Now, this is um, true. The problem is, is their understanding of what this all means. Okay? It's what this all means. Jesus is going to have two big problems in his ministry in these last, this last week of his life. And that is, what do you do with Gentiles and what do you do with the temple? What do you do with Gentiles? What do you do with the temple? So, 
First part of my message, I want to talk about what's going on. And that's really verses 20, 12 through 21. And then I want to talk about our response, which is verses 22 through 25. So let's, let's look on, at what's going on. I, first, I want to talk about the king and the temple. Okay? If you recall, the day before he curses the fig tree and, and uh, goes into the temple is Palm Sunday. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is doing things in which people are wondering who this Jesus is. He's, he's uh, healing people. He's uh, teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's doing all the things that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And people are wondering, is this really the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? On the Mount of Transfiguration, he reveals himself to uh, Peter, James, and John. Uh, that he really is the Messiah, that he is the king, and then he starts saying, now i got to go die. i got to move to go to Jerusalem to die. His disciples have recognized he is the king. And so finally, when it comes here to Palm Sunday, when Jesus sat on that donkey and entered into the shouts of Hosanna, Jesus was enacting his entrance, showing to the world that he is indeed the Messiah, or at least he is publicly admitting to everyone, that's who he believes he is. So then the question comes, what do you do? How do you, right? He believes he is the king. He has come and demonstrated that he is the king by riding on that donkey. And the first place he went was to the temple. The next day, he comes back to the temple. It says, on the following day when he came from Bethany, uh, he was hungry, and he goes to the temple. Now, the temple has always been associated with a king. If you recall, when um, the people were taken out of Egypt, um, the instructions to Moses was a tabernacle. And so God dwelt in a tent. And the tent moved. As the people moved, the tent moved. But when David became king, he was thinking, you know, here I've got this pretty nice palace. I should build one for Jesus, or for, uh, for God. And so so what he, he does is he starts to make a plan to build a temple. And God says, um, thank you, but your hands are filled with blood and you're not to build my temple. That will be Solomon. So Solomon builds the temple. So the king, David, is associated with the temple. He's the one that picked the spot. He's the one that made, had the idea. Solomon is the one that built the, the, the temple. The temple later gets destroyed and when the people are exiled into Babylon, when they come back after Cyrus, it is the king Zerubbabel, or the one who should be king, perhaps, uh, helps lay the foundation to the new one. In Jesus' day, they have this beautiful temple, but it's been built by someone who claims to be the king of the Jews, Herod. And in order to uh, get the people to accept his kingship, he spent lots of time and money on this beautiful, magnificent temple and hoping that people would accept him as the king of the Jews. Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be associated with the temple, and so it is natural that when he comes, he goes to the temple. Now, this isn't the first time we see Jesus at a temple. The first time we see Jesus at the temple, well, in his ministry, was in John. In the very beginning of his ministry, he came out, and his, uh, his cleansing of the temple was a fairly violent one. 
It's when he makes whips. He's whipping people out. He's overturning these things. It's chaos. He sends them all out. And the big question is, who are you to do this? What kind of authority do you have? And the real answer is, well, he's the Messiah. He's the king, and he's the son of God, and he has this authority to do it. And everyone just sat around and did nothing and just let him clean it. Three years later, he comes back in this story. But what's happening here is that the king isn't coming and cleaning it out again. What's really happening here is is that the king has come and he has observed the temple and he is pronouncing judgment on it. And before he does, he sees the fig tree. He goes to the fig tree and there's no fruit on it and it's not even time for the fruit. In other words, this is all intentional. Jesus isn't just like somehow mad that there's no figs on the fig tree. This is a symbolic act. Jesus goes to the fig tree, there's no fruit on it, and he curses it. In the same way as he's gone into the temple, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. And his overturning the tables and kicking things, people out, is not him going, okay, we're going to try one more time, and this time we'll get it right in the temple. No. He's judged the temple, and it is doomed for destruction. It is doomed for destruction. So let's look at that, that, that fig tree right again. Seeing the distance, the fig tree and leaf, he would see that it could find anything out. When he came, he found it nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Down to verse 20, and they passed in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to the roots. And Peter remembered to him, look, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. If what Jesus is saying, that the temple is doomed, that he is going to destroy it, and later on he does on the Mount of Olives. Just a few days later, he's going to be in the Mount of Olives after the disciples look at the the nice building and they talk about how glorious it is. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, there's not even going to be one stone left upon another. And that this generation is going to survive to see it. Happened in 70 A.D., Some 40 years after Jesus' ministry began, the temple was destroyed by Rome and uh, not one stone left on another. What, What does this mean then? If the temple is going to be gone, what will this mean? Let's look at God's plan, or let's look at what was wrong with the temple first. When Jesus goes to the temple and he does all this stuff, he teaches them, he says, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Now we read earlier, um, the, um, Casey read um, from Isaiah, where this comes from, a house of prayer for all nations, right? That God has this intent that, that Israel and its worship of him would be a light to the entire world and that people seeing the worship of God, would then come to him. Now, by the time Jesus had gotten here, there's, you know, the, the house is divided, right? There's Judah's, you know, one place and got exiled and brought back and the other ten tribes have been scattered throughout the world and uh, Rome occupies them. And the temple 
The temple, rather than being used as a house of prayer for all nations, as being some light to the Gentiles in which God had commanded it to be and for his people to be, the vocation of the God's people were to be a light to the world, um, it's not happening. All of the activity that he saw, the money changing, the, the pigeons, the, everything that was happening was in the temple, in the court that was reserved for the Gentiles to come and pray. Okay? So if you look at if you ever see a picture uh, of the temple, when you first come in, there's this, the court of the Gentiles. The Romans, the Greeks, the, the Persians, whoever would come, would, could come in and they could hear uh, the word of God. They could um, worship and pray uh, to the God of Israel. But what happened is, is that because the Romans occupied the area, anything that was bought and sold by Jews was taxed, and that tax was given to the Romans. The agreement they had with the Roman government was, if you sold something within your temple walls, you can keep it. Oh, well, this is a great idea. Let's make it convenient for people. They can buy and sell all the stuff that they need to worship God. And we'll make sure it's in the walls of the temple. And the proceeds, of course, can go to, you know, glorify the temple and make it better. It would be a really great thing. The only problem is, is that the place in which they're doing this is supposed to be the place that the Romans are to come and worship God. Right? Great idea. Right? We can... It makes fiscal sense to do the buying and selling within the temple walls rather than out, because then you don't have to pay taxes to, to Caesar. But if it's in the temple walls, we get to keep the proceeds. a great fundraising operation, isn't it? The problem is that the vocation of the people was to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be a light to the Romans who occupied them. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, but you have made it a den of robbers. That is a passage from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7 is an important, um, uh, an important prophecy uh, in this. And it was originally talking about the first time the temple was destroyed. What had happened is, is that the people of Israel had been um, in a sense, following the motions of worshiping God, they're continuing to have their sacrifices. They're continuing to, um, you know, do those religious things that are required of the law. Except personally, the people of Israel, their hearts were far from the Lord, and they were continuing to do um, sinful things, to be oppressive to the poor, uh, to uh, uh, to well, to do a lot of unethical things, and even. Um, to violently rob other people. This, this word here that is translated robber um, has the idea of uh, a type of violent, um, violent thieving or stealing. Okay? And, and in the prophecy in Jeremiah 7, God accuses the people who are continuing to say that they, could, they don't have to worry about enemies because they trust in the house. They, have, they, they believe in the house of Yahweh, the house of Yahweh. They know that because God dwells with them in the temple and that they're worshipped, they believe that they're not going to be invaded or taken over. 
They, they think they're immune from enemies. And in, Pro, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, God's saying, look, you've made the temple into a den of robbers and the temple's going to be destroyed. Jesus uses the same language. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And to give better context into Jesus' day, this is the fun one. According to Roman law, according to Roman law, the kind of robbery mentioned here, this violent kind of robbery, had a term for it. It was called banditry. Banditry had not only a... uh, thieving component to it it also had a rebellious component to it in other words bandits were the ones who were insurrectionists only they didn't call it insurrection they called it banditry but it was the same type of uh, the same kind of um, activity the thing that differed between banditry and insurrection according to roman law had to do with how it was dealt with if there was a group of people who were trying to overthrow Romans' government by doing things like thieving and other things, and the, and the people could take care of it through the Roman soldiers who were there, it was called banditry. Guess, guess what the punishment was for banditry? That's right, crucifixion. Guess what, would the, guess what the punishment was for thieving, for just stealing, robbing? It was not crucifixion. Crucifixion was used for insurrection, and this particular kind of insurrection was banditry. If the, the, if the rebellion was big enough where you needed to bring troops from another province into your own, then it was labeled an insurrection. And guess what the punishment for that was? You guessed it, crucifixion. Jesus was hung between, between two bandits. Right? Barabbas... Barabbas got off, even though he killed someone in his rebellion, in his banditry, right? It's just the hard part is when we translate it to English and it comes out thief, we think of just someone who's stealing stuff, right? Jesus hung between, he didn't hung between just two mere thieves that stole things. He hung between two bandits who were insurrectionists. They were trying to overthrow Rome. What's he saying here? Jesus says, my house shall be called for a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of bandits. You're using the place that God has ordained for the nations to come and pray as a place where you can plot against them. They hated the Romans. They hated them. They wanted them out. Their messianic expectation was the overthrow of Rome. And Jesus is there saying, it is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. The people who should be coming into the temple to pray are the Romans. Imagine the, the, the shock when they heard the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, you've heard it say that you're supposed to you know, uh, hate your enemy. I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about the next-door neighbor that annoys you. He's talking about the Romans who occupy them. When he says, when, it's, when you're supposed to go, uh, when someone asks you to go a mile, you go two, it, that's Roman law that says what, if a centurion 
um, orders you to carry his stuff, you, you have to go for a mile. Jesus says, go two. To the Romans. The plan and purpose of God is to not just have a small group of people in the Middle East follow him. Jesus has come to be the Savior, not just of Israel, not just to be the King of the Jews, but to be the Savior of the world. That all nations will flood to him. Why is it that Jesus got crucified? What was the charge given to him? Well, he started talking against the temple. He said that that he could destroy the temple and three days raise it, raise it again. Because who's the temple? Right? In the old that is passing away, it is the building, it's the sacrifices, it's the old way. In the new, the temple is Jesus. That all nations are going to flood to Yahweh through Jesus. Not a mountain in Israel. It's Jesus The chief priests and scribes understood what he was saying and they sought a way to destroy him. And they tried. They got him accused of being called the king of the Jews and he was crucified. But we understand that his crucifixion was part of the big plan. The reason the temple isn't necessary is because Jesus was the sacrifice once and for all for all sin. The temple's no longer necessary. This, this leads to, to the, our response. If we look at verses uh, 22 through 25 once again, okay? Jesus had gone and he's judged the temple. He symbolically enacts its overthrow. He teaches that the problem is, is that you've been a, you're supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. The scribes and the Pharisees understand that he has just pronounced judgment, which meant the destruction of the temple via Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And here's what Jesus answered them after he pointed out the fig tree was cursed. Jesus said, ready? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. In Jeremiah chapter 7, it goes, what was everyone had faith in? They had faith in the temple. We have the temple, so we're going to be fine. We have the temple. Everything will be good. We have the temple. They, no one can conquer us. And the prophet Jeremiah said, no, you, you, the temple is going to be destroyed. Jesus is saying the same thing. But he's now saying, don't have faith in the temple. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly I say, whoever says to this mountain, now that's a weird one, right? How many of you heard, uh, the, you know, faith can move mountains? Everyone hear that? Faith can move mountains? How many of you ever gotten that advice for someone? Ha just believe, have faith, faith can move mountains? Anyone, right? right? Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, whoever, uh, whoever says to this mountain, which mountain is he talking about? What mountain are they at? The temple. 
Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he has says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Well, what does that mean to be taken up into the sea? What does the sea represent all throughout the Old Testament? The sea has always represented forces of chaos and evil and the Gentile world. The sea has to do with judgment and destruction. Jesus is saying, whoever says to this mountain, to the temple mount, be taken up, thrown into the sea, into, uh, into destruction, into judgment, into even, say, to be trampled on by the Gentiles, which later he will say will happen. But believes that uh, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Well, what is that? Who is the one who says this? Jesus. And it was done. It was finished. We don't have a temple anymore in a physical one on Mount Zion. For us, when we believe this, it means that we have faith in this, what Jesus has done. We understand that we don't need a physical temple because we have Jesus. And if we don't doubt this, it comes to pass that we have relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. And then he says, he goes on, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you have received it, and it will be yours. Who's supposed to believe? How do you get, right? Think of the old. I need prayer. I need reconciled with God. I need to fulfill a vow. I need whatever it might be. What, is, what do you need to do? You need to go to Jerusalem. You need to go up to the mountain. You need to go to the temple. You have to produce your sacrifices. You go to the priest and show yourself to them. You talk to the priest who will pronounce, who will mediate all this stuff for you. But in Christ, in Christ, it's all about faith. It's not the works of a temple. It's about what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. How do you know that you're forgiven? Because the Word of God tells you. Because what Jesus Christ did was effective. It really did. You, you don't have to take a, a, a goat or a lamb and bring it to someone to have them kill it for you. Jesus accomplished it on the cross. You just need to believe. You have received it. It will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so the Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. How are you to be reconciled to your brother or sister if there's no temple? The law of God says that if you have, if there's some sort of uh, uh, problem, I need to bring a sacrifice with my friend and we sacrifice it and then we eat together with the priest and the friend or the, the, the one now we're reconciled. How is this done without the temple? What Jesus did accomplished it all. What Jesus did accomplished it all. Faith does move the mountain. It removes it. We don't need it. We believe. What we say, it'll come to pass. It'll be done for us. 
We can forgive and it'll be, and we'll be forgiven. All without the temple. Because the temple we have is Jesus. The temple we have is Jesus. Everything's been accomplished on our behalf through his sacrifice on the cross. Everything. You are saved by grace, not by works, not by obeying an old covenant, but by believing in what Christ has done for you. Your salvation comes through faith in what he has done. To believe, it'll be done for you. It will have already been done for you, I should say. Faith is the victory. It overcomes the world. And that faith is good for everyone. That faith, what Jesus did on the cross, made it possible for Jew and Gentile to become one. Right? For the rich and the poor to be one. For slave and free to be one. For male and female to be one. We're all one in Him. It's not just that he is taking, uh, becoming king of, a, of an old country Israel and adding territory to it. Jesus is the Savior of the world and he's creating a brand new people. And it's us, the church. What should the fruit of this look like? What should the fruit of this new way look like? Well... I think it means the fruit is, is that more people come to Him. The people of all stripes come to Him. People of all ethnicities, every tongue, every nation, every people. The poor and the rich, the slave and the free, all come to Him. What should this mean to you as All Saints Church? I think it's continuing to live out your very name. To bring all people to become saints in Him. How would you judge such faith? How would you judge the fruit of that ministry? Well, some things I saw. You all confessed your sin together, trusting that Jesus paid for it all. I saw you passing the peace with one another. There's nothing that should separate you because of what Christ has done for you. I say keep it up and then keep extending it and extending it. That more and more might hear of the love of God and what Christ has done for them. That they can come here and be amongst His people and hear His word they might be forgiven and the people of God continue to grow. And the King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would be glorified through it all. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we live in an age where we have not seen blood sacrifices. We have not had to go to a temple But God, we know that that was so ingrained into people of old. And sometimes we forget, Lord, that we still need a type of temple. But that temple is Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the reconciliation he has provided for us, for the forgiveness of sin that he has provided, for the reconciliation we have with other people 
and other nations and other tongues and languages through Jesus. I pray, Lord, for all saints' church and for all the churches in our area that we would be fruitful in the vocation you've given us to be a light to this world and that your son Jesus may be glorified in it. We pray this in his name. Amen.